For the last two weeks, we've been discussing one of the building blocks of church unity, as Paul explains it in Romans chapter 14. One of the big dangers in church life and in one's own spiritual walk is the pitfall of wrong attitudes toward those who disagree with us in how we're supposed to live out our faith in the Lord. What do we do with people who just don't see things our way? Well, we try to drive them out of church, right? No, that's not what we do. The answer is found in the very first thought of the first verse of chapter 14. Except the one who is weak in faith. The key word there is accept. Accepting those who are different is the key. Now, as we've said in the past couple weeks as we've been looking at this, we're not talking about any, just any old difference. These are things uh, that are non-essential things that we're talking about. There are things that are unacceptable. There are things that are just flat out wrong. When it comes to essential truth, doctrines, there must be conformity or separation. When it comes to essential moral principles that are clearly expressly stated in Scripture, they have to be adhered to or else there will be separation. There has to be. The subject at hand regards non-essentials or what are sometimes called the gray areas of the Christian life, things that are not black or white that are somewhere in between because the Bible specifically forbids some things and it specifically commands other things, but there's other things that people have strong opinions about that are not clear. And that's what we're talking about. Sometimes the gray areas are just differences of opinion about certain matters, but sometimes they can be divided into opinions which Paul classifies as strong and weak. And that's what he's talking about here. Except the one who is weak in faith. Weak as regards, in this context, fully grasping what Christian liberty is. In other words, in the gospel, in Christ, we have forgiveness for our sins, we are saved to be obedient to God, but we are free from a lot of the ritual, formalistic things that were meant to point to the Messiah, but once he's come, we don't need them anymore. The strong are those that understand that liberty in Christ. Not as a freedom to be carnal, but a freedom to be under Christ's lordship without a lot of ritual obligations. The strong have Christ and they understand their complete acceptance in him and that he himself is their salvation. They're just not overly concerned with external stuff like keeping certain days or ceremonial impurity, certain kinds of foods and things like that. The weak believe in Christ too and they're just as devoted to him as their Lord and Savior. They, however, find Christian liberty a hard thing to feel comfortable in. They feel more comfortable usually for reasons of a religious background, when they come to Christ, they find it hard to let go of certain things. So they find it important to honor God with certain festival days, maybe Sabbath days if they have a Jewish background, probably what's going on here. Or maybe certain foods that they're not allowed to eat because of their background or their previous religious experiences. Or the whole issue of idolatry, which we talked about in previous weeks, that sometimes... In the Roman world, meat was sold in the open market, but it had been in a pagan temple being offered to a pagan god. And people that were very fastidious, that came from an idolatrous background, didn't want to touch that kind of meat. People that were strong in Christ, they could say, hey, it's meat. Idols aren't anything anyway. So it doesn't matter if it was offered to an idol or not, we can eat it. But those who had been in idolatry and for whom this was a big deal and sort of still feared those former religious things, we're not even going to ever eat meat because we don't know where it came from. Unless we know who the cow was, and who the butcher was and where it's been, we're not going to have any meat. And, and that was an issue of contention between people. 
And the strong would look down on the weak and say, oh, you guys are just, you know, you don't have it together with your spiritual life yet. And the weak would look at the strong and they would say, you guys are carnal, we don't care about demons and idols and stuff. And there's something wrong with you. And they had this problem going on. Well, there's lots of modern versions of that, as we've talked about in the last couple weeks. So these guys were used to abstaining. And they see abstaining as part of their Christian duty or the observance of certain days, the week. So Paul says, verse 5, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind about these gray areas. So in these non-essential areas, there needs to be acceptance and mutual respect. The problem comes not in the differences, but in the attitudes regarding the differences. The strong tend to look down on the weak as inferior Christians. The weak look at the strong as impious, not serious enough about their Christian obligations and their faith. They're casual Christians to the, uh, the weak there. Each side is tempted to question the motives and the commitment of the other side. And that's the problem. The result is not acceptance, but division and parties and groups and all of that. Well, there's those of us who know the real truth and practice it properly, and then there's the other people we have to put up with in church. You know, that kind of stuff. Or we need to go start our own group or whatever. And a divided congregation in that way is going nowhere real fast. So last week we mentioned, um, for example, schooling is one of those examples of conflict in the modern church. People make different choices about where they send their kids to school. That, over the last six or seven years, that 20 years ago, that was not even an issue. I mean, people didn't even talk about it hardly. Now it's a big issue all over the country. Big deal. Public schools, private schools, Christian schools, religious schools of another denomination, home schools, no schools, whatever. I don't know. There's all kinds of opportunities and, and opinions. For some, school has become literally a matter of doctrine, not personal choice. And it's moving that way in, very, um, in a very dramatic way in certain parts of the evangelical church. If you make the wrong choice, you're not as good a Christian as the person that makes the right choice. You know what I mean? Example, I received an invitation this week. In fact, I was you know, putting this stuff together and thinking about it. And sure enough, through the email comes an invitation to a conference which has as its goal, this conference back east I was invited to go to, to reintegrate homeschool families with the church. Now that conference is noticing a very real problem in the modern evangelical church. That interested me because there is an anti-church strain in parts, I emphasize the word parts, of the homeschool movement, which is unhealthy for families uh, spiritually and it robs churches of very gifted brothers and sisters in the Lord that could contribute to the church as a whole. It's a problem. And this conference organizers mentioned that some families have gone so far as to become their own church. What do we do on Sunday morning? We wake up and we bring the family together and dad is the pastor and, and the, the kids are the church and, that, and mom and the kids are the church and they have their own church. That is a growing thing. Now that's not biblical. And these guys recognize that that's not biblical. In fact, there are a number of families like that locally, even in our own town. How do you fix that? How do you integrate this homeschooling family with the church and benefit both? It's a really good question the conference organizers are asking. The answer, apparently, at least according to them, is that the church has to completely change to match the philosophy of these families. And when the church does that, everything will be all right. Except not everybody has that philosophy. See, that's, that's the little stickling point in all those things. 
age-segregated classes have to go, because that's humanistic. Sunday school has to go. Youth groups have to go. All that stuff has to go, because it all has to be built around a patriarch who runs his family and is the, the leader, and the church needs to totally support him. Well, I agree the church needs to support dads, and dads tend to wig out when it comes to beating the priests of their home, and that's a real problem. And they're trying to address that real problem by making dad everything. Well, dad's become too much everything, so these guys are saying, well, we got to try to bring the church and dad back together. These homeschool patriarchal families and the evangelical church need to be remarried, but the church is going to have to change and adopt this philosophy that the homeschool family said. It's just one of these interesting modern church problems, you know? It's just, where do you go with all this? How do you make everybody happy? And they, they believe, these conference organizers, that worldly methodologies springing from secular education have molded the church in the 20th century. And those things have to be removed. I mean, that's what they really sincerely believe. So, how do you deal with that? And right there, when you say worldly methodologies, and there are churches that do use worldly methodologies, that's a legitimate thing to talk about. But once you say that, you've made a separation, right? You've questioned motive, you've questioned where it's coming from, you've questioned a lot of things. See, this becomes a really interesting topic until you start questioning motives. In fact, let me read you a paragraph from what I was sent describing church from the standpoint of the patriarchal homeschool movement. He says, sadly, now he does criticize the, church, the families that go off and be a church all by themselves. He criticizes them, but then he says this, sadly, many churches have taken it upon themselves to actually persecute families who want their children to worship with them rather than attending kiddie church or who will not participate in the church youth group or Christian school. The debt burden carried by many local churches and the perceived need to subsidize the debt by bringing in new members through ever more innovative programs, youth groups, and church schools only makes the matter worse. Parents who object to such activities are deemed troublemakers. The church leadership is tempted to adopt a dictatorial approach which includes squashing anything which questions the methodology for church growth that they learned in seminary. Now, if that was really true, and it might be true some places, that's sad if a church acts like that towards a homeschooling family. But I suspect it's not that way. Phrases like kitty church, when you're talking about having a separate time where the children can go out and have an age-appropriate lesson, is a, is a cut, right? I mean, that is meant to be a, 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 a cut, but that's a shallow form of spirituality. Or suggestions of having a Christian school, which many great Christian educators over the last 25 years who have started the Christian school movement have been passionate to bring a Christian education. The reason churches really do that is to reverse their debt ratio, see? It's money. It's only money that's making all that, that stuff happen. And the word persecuted, that's a pretty heavily biased word for people that might say, you know, we're not going to do it your way. Um, that kind of attitude is exactly what Paul is talking about. It's the attitude. It's not the differences of philosophy, because I think that philosophy of the patriarchal homeschooling family has a lot of good things about it. But I also think youth groups might have a lot of good things about them, and Sunday schools might have good things about them, and Christian schools definitely have good things about them. There might be bad things about them too, but there's good things about them. There might be bad things over here too. We've seen disasters happen in patriarchal homeschooling families. So there's not, it's not black and white. You can't open the Bible and it says you need to homeschool your kids. It doesn't say that. It doesn't forbid you from having a Christian school. It doesn't even forbid you from sending your kid to a public school. It doesn't talk about it. It says you have an obligation as a parent to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
It talks about in Deuteronomy specifically that dads have this incredible responsibility to talk about the law of God when they sit down, when they rise up, when they walk by the way, and all that stuff. That's definitely there. And we all should be striving for that because that's biblical. But how we get there, you might have a different opinion about that than I do. You might. And you know what? You're going to have to respect my opinion and I'm going to have to respect yours. That's just the way it is. And to suggest that your spirituality is inferior because you make a different choice or your church is more shallow because it does this. Or they're really after money. That's the only reason they have these programs is to draw people in because they're so concerned about their debt ratio. That's just tacky. It's a tacky insult. It really is. It's the attitude of they are different from us so they're only playing at church. They are different from us so their school and youth group are not to reach young people for Christ but to reverse the debt ratio. They are different from us we are the persecuted. See? That's a wrong attitude. That's a wrong attitude. Now, honestly, I think these folks may be saying important things. It is always wise to think about the impact of methodologies, even if they've been around for a long time, on families, on people's spiritual walks, on discipleship, on all of that stuff. That's important to rethink those things and be challenged in those things. And I'd like to hear their arguments for doing things differently. I'm totally interested in that. But not at the expense of judging my brother or the person that comes to a different conclusion. And you know what? I've got a, a great sarcastic ability in my life. I, I used to be a master, and I still can pull it out when I need to, right? But um, <laughs> that's not right, though. I mean, it's easy to tear down other people like that. It's for people that enjoy doing it and have good, are good at it. We are not talking about heresies or sins or anything like that. Just youth groups and Christian schools. See, that's all, that, that's all that they're talking about. But because that's what it is and it's different from their philosophy, it has to be a less spiritual thing. Bad place to go. Verse 6, Romans 14. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord who does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's it right there acceptance is the key. I found that paragraph I read to you fascinating because we have had to deal with some of those exact issues in our own church. I remember very well discussions we had with the deacon board uh, a long time ago not to overemphasize or push people into the children's church program which some of the kids are right now because some people like to have their children with them in the service. And we said, make sure you're not telling, making people feel uncomfortable about having their kids in the service because we think that's great. But, but some people actually want to hear the sermon. And when they're wrestling with their five-year-old, see, the, the person has total control over the family can say, well, if they had control over their kids, that would be better. But you know what? Sometimes those squirmy five-year-olds are just a hassle. And I have literally, we've invited people to church and watched them fight their kids all the time in the back and never heard a word that was said here. Never participated in the worship, never, because all they did was fight their kids the whole time. It's not evil for them to make the choice to move their kids in the, to, have, to an age-appropriate lesson. It's not bad. And it's not bad to keep them in here and, and us have to put up with some squirmies now and then. That's not bad either. Both have a good point. Both are fine, legitimate options. It's not a lesser form of Christianity to have your kids over there, have your kids over here. It's just different. A different choice. 
And accommodating those people's choices to concentrate on the sermon has nothing to do with debt ratios or anything else. But we want to be sensitive to where everybody's conscience is, see? So I've got some news. This is just general now, so it has nothing to do with children's church or anything. If you have found a better way than whatever else we're doing, you haven't. If your better way does not include acceptance of those who differ, respecting fully their conscience, and has love behind it. You may have found a better way, but it's not a better way if you don't do those things. If you can't accept people that are different, if you can't love them, and if you can't respect fully their conscience, it's not a better way. So without these things, your better way is only wood, hay, and stubble, as we talked about last time on the Great Judgment Day. Even if, if, even if it is a great idea. So don't forget that, ever. And as long as you're in this church, please don't forget it. Um, at the same time, I say to the person that has a better idea, pursue your better idea passionately and see how it goes. Work it. Share it. Be vigorous about it. Let your conscience be a determiner for how you want to work your life and arrange your situation and pursue the Lord. But as long as we're all for the Lord and the decisions that we're making, we have to respect where each other is. That's what, that's what it's all about. Don't just assume your conscience is a determinative conscience for everybody else. That's where the problem comes in. Now, these principles of acceptance, respecting conscience, and love may at times make very heavy demands on us. Love and liberty do not always walk together. Love and liberty do not always walk together. Liberty is wonderful, but liberty in Christ is mainly about me. Love is about the good of other people. And guess where the priority is in Christian life? It's in love. Love is more important than liberty. In the New Testament, love is the highest virtue and it always takes precedence. There's a wise old saying in Christian circles, and I don't know who said it first, but it sums up Paul's thinking very well. Here's how it goes. In things essential, unity. In things doubtful, gray areas, liberty. In all things, charity or love. In all things, love. In things essential, unity. In things doubtful, liberty. In all things, love. That's a great principle, way to approach church life. Love is the great mark of the Christian's identity, not fastidious judgments about other people's consciences and lives. Let's turn back to Romans 14 here. Um, last week we ended at uh, verse 12. Let's pick it up at verse 13. And from verse 13 to 23, I see four principles supporting the notion that sometimes it's better to let liberty go in the name of love. And that's really the theme here. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Notice how strong his words are about the possible effect you could have on the weaker brother. Hurt and destroy him by exercising your liberty in an ungracious way. Don't judge your brother 
protect him. It's not about being right. It's about the other guy's well-being spiritually. That's the first concern. So principle number one, realize that to hurt your brother violates love. Hurting your brother violates love. He's asking the strong, those who know their liberty, verse 13, to change their whole view of the weaker fellow, the one tied up with rules and rituals that are not really matters of holiness, but just his own personal preferences or uh, comfort zone or whatever you want to put it. Don't think about your superior view, he says. Think about what might happen to him if you flaunt your liberty in his face. That's, that's what he wants you to think about. Not, oh, you know, I'm so much more sophisticated in my Christian life than this poor measly fellow who can't do this or that. That's not the way to think. Think, could I hurt him in something that I might be doing? Could I upset him or cause division or problems? He might stumble. You might trip him up in his walk with Christ. That's not love. Love wants what's good for that fellow. And Paul says in verse 14, he says, I agree with you. He says to the strong, I agree with you. There are no unclean foods anymore. You're right, but here's what you need to understand. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. See? That is how significant the individual conscience is. We don't give enough room for that. That person who won't eat meat from the market because it may have been offered to an idol, his conscience tells him it's defiled. So it is. It's against God to him. So it is. If he really believes it's against God, then you do something that's against God right in front of his face, you're just causing problems. Paul says in verse 14, I agree, but to him who thinks it's unclean, it is unclean. So what do you do? Tear off a big bite of pork in front of your Jewish friend who came to Christ and say with your mouth full, come on, dig in, not as good as pork, come on, you're free in Christ now. That's not what you're supposed to do. What's going to happen to that guy when you do that? Even with your mouth closed and chewing it delicately. What's going to happen to it? A dark cloud is going to descend over him. He could have any number of reactions. Disgust, shock, pain in his gut, anger, confusion. All kinds of reactions are possible. He could be just devastated. He might break fellowship and walk. I have an acquaintance who was attending a church where liberty was heavily emphasized. But you know, at some point, liberty can just become boundless, like no limits. And as it was told to me, these pastors who have a radio show here in Southern California and also pastor a church decided to have a 70s retro party. And one of the pastors, according to the story, as I was told it, everybody dressed 70s and they had 70s music playing. They had a 70s party at a church. Okay, all right. Liberty, right? In one corner, a TV was playing Saturday Night Fever or something like that. And on the stage, the pastor had a can of beer in his hand and was singing songs from ACDC's Highway to Hell album. Now... It may be that these guys had the liberty to do that. It may be. Although I would say it's a very dark shade of gray, if that's what it is, okay? And, and maybe it's beyond the pale. Maybe it's into the black zone, just based on elder qualifications, like be dignified. I'm not sure. But uh, Timothy and Titus, you know. But they saw it as liberty. Okay, well, my, my acquaintance, my friend, couldn't handle it. 
And frankly, he lost respect for his church leaders in that situation. And eventually he left the church. And it certainly caused confusion in his heart and pain to see that. Now, I would have left too, by the way. But obviously, that's an extreme example. But it really happened. I mean, flaunted liberty. But liberty is not to be flaunted in the face of those who are more tender. That's wrong. You could hurt or even destroy a brother or sister by violating their conscience. A Christian that saw that in church leadership might quit church forever. And that's just wrong. You can imagine what they'll be saying about you because you flaunted liberty so you'll end up in a sermon somewhere in some other church. They might say you are casual and unconcerned about Christ. That might be their assumption. That might be the way their story is told. You don't want to do that, do you? You might say, I don't care what they say. Well, verse 16 says, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Don't act in such a way that your liberty is going to be a cause of slander and bad talk and bad feeling amongst other people. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Even the divisive feelings work against God's purpose in the church. So Paul says, think about the nature of God's kingdom then. He says, the gospel, what it means to you, what it's all about. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Food isn't what the kingdom's about, whether eating or not eating. It has nothing to do with it. It's about righteousness, which means being right with God and doing what's right. It's about peace with God and with one another. It's about joy and the Holy Spirit and abiding gladness, living in God's good grace. It's not about food. It's not about enjoying the food or not enjoying the food. It's not about partaking or not partaking. So principle number two is prioritize the kingdom of God. Prioritize the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So what do hurt feelings and shocked consciences and dissensions have to do with those good things? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Nothing. They have nothing to do with them. And if food is going to overthrow what the kingdom is all about, let the food go. Let the liberty go. A liberty is not worth it if that's the result. What do we want people to see from outside? Do we want them to see Christians judging each other and conflicts and hurt feelings? No, and God doesn't want to see that, and people don't want to see that. For righteousness, peace, and joy. That looks good to everybody. Verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So serve Christ by majoring on those things and put all the rest of the stuff in some other category, which can be let go easily if it conflicts with these things. Principle number three, verse 19. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So, third principle, determine to build, not tear down other people. Determine to build, not tear down. Pursue peace and edification. You know what an edifice is? It's a building, right? Edifying someone is to build them up. That's the idea here. Here again, it's our thinking and our goals. You know, conflicts often arise from just sloppy Christianity. That, by that I mean just reacting. Oh, somebody does this, says this, oh, I react to them, you know, because I'm not really planning anything. I'm not, I don't have a goal. I'm just sort of existing. I'm a Christian in the church. 
oh, what's this? Oh, oh, you know, we start a fight. And uh, feelings, feelings lead us because we don't have a purpose for being there for what we're supposed to be doing. Offended sensibilities just drive away thought and reflection. We don't plan or think about anything. But when we have goals in mind, when we have something we're pursuing, that puts feelings and emotions in a, in a proper context and constructive things can happen. So our Christian life is not to be a reactive one, but a, a conscious, deliberate, focused pursuit of what? Peace and building up other people. If that's what my goal is, if I come in and my goal is to build you up, you can say all kinds of hurtful things. And I'm going to put that in a different place in my heart and in my mind than I would if I was just reacting to you, saying something horrible to me. If my purpose is to build you up, okay, you said a hurtful thing. Now, why did you do that? What do you need? How am I going to help you over that hurtfulness, that, that attitude? That's a, isn't it totally different? So if that's what we're after, pursuing then those liberty issues just fall to the wayside as well. They're not very important. Because it's not about me, it's about the other guy. Love. A Christian's relationships are not to be reactive. They're supposed to be purposeful. And too often we lose sight of that. Even in our homes, you know. Of course, I hope you do that. You are supposed to have a purpose in relating to your wife. And in relating to your children. What purpose? Well, here's a good starter right here. Peace. And the building up of one another, that should be the purpose for your relationships. Are you building? How? How are you building? What's your plan? Is your partner edified by you, by your conversation, by your tone, by the way you behave? What about other people in your life? Are you a builder? Or are you just aimlessly sort of responding to the moment? See? Pursue, pursue peace and the building up of one another. In the matter of gray areas, your liberty really needs to stop at the place where it hurts them or their conscience. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. See, it might be totally right for you to eat meat offered to an idol, but if you're going to do that and not care about or even delight in the offense you give to someone else, it's evil. Suddenly that, uh, that clean thing has become a cause of evil because you're evil in, the, in your attitude about it. So Paul agrees, all things are clean. You do have liberty in food, but what is clean can become evil if it hurts someone else. And people are more important than food. Not too complicated an idea. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Don't cause your brother to stumble. So you have to understand, some people just freak out when you do something that they believe is evil. And instead of flaunting your liberty in their face, and because it's fun to watch people freak out, let it go. Put your liberty aside. And there's another danger you need to understand. You may actually draw that weaker person into sin. They might see what you're doing and your superior attitude and be intimidated to the point where they join you in what you're doing. Well, that's good. They should join me in what I'm doing because I'm right. No. You may think you've set them free, but they didn't join you because their convictions changed. They joined you because they were intimidated. And in that case, you have actually caused them to sin. You've caused them to sin because they violated their conscience. Paul gives a really good example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're running out of time, but I'm going to ask you to just hang on with me and turn there for a second. It's the idol issue again. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Concerning things sacrificed to idol, we know that we all have knowledge. 
What does knowledge do? It makes arrogant. But love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. In other words, idols are just wood and stone and stuff, and they don't really have anything there, right? There's no gods there. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yes, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. There are pagan deities out there that people believe in. Yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God when we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Aren't you pulling him in that direction against his own conscience? For through your knowledge, he who was weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. It's that big of a deal. Verse 10 there again, he's saying he will be drawn into an activity that he believes is evil, so he's violated his conscience, gone against Christ as he understands him. And think about it. Once he's crossed the line violating his conscience in this area, what have you just taught him to do? Violate his conscience. So next time, maybe even it's a biblical area, clear black and white area, you've already trained him to violate his conscience. You've drawn him over the line. So now he's already done it. He's got a habit he could start. That can destroy a person. Okay, Romans 14, verse 22. Speaking to the strong, the faith which you have has, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Enjoy your liberty. Be happy in your knowledge that God approves of what you're doing, but, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And here's a very important principle. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's number four. Whatever, always live by faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's how the chapter concludes. Faith is the very life of the Christian. It is the essence of what we are. Believers. Faith. People of faith. Faith governs our thinking, our choices, our understanding. And if we step outside of faith, we're in sin. That's what it's saying. To act in selfishness or arrogance or in the fear of other men is not a godly act. We must be motivated in all things by faith. Everything. Faith in God, trusting God, leaning on God. That is how all-pervasive the Christian life is as regards faith. It is to be literally who we are, believers. And if that seems strange to you or over the top or too much, then you're, you've missed out on what being a Christian is all about. Faith governs everything. And where faith isn't, sin is. Life is to be lived continually in His presence and by His grace. And if I do something that I believe is wrong because I'm afraid of another person's ideas or what he might think about me, that's not, I'm not acting on faith at all. And I've crossed the line into sin. And you've drawn me there. The guy that 
pulled me over that line, drew me there. He's responsible too. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Actually, I think that's chapter 3. There is no act you can do outside of faith, even an act of self-restraint or mercy, if it's not done in faith, doesn't please God. Think about it. That's a very heavy thought. Anything done outside of faith is sin, even if it looks good. You can intimidate the tender brother to accept your liberty, but in his heart he is compromised, and for him, now he's in sin. And so much of what sin is about, you know, it's internal. It always starts inside. So strong Christian, you better think more of protecting and strengthening your brother than exercising your liberty. Even if it means letting go of your liberty. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? If I never meet again, I, I won't do it if I'm really going to cause a problem. Now, we're out of time, but this leads to a final question. It always comes when you talk about this. How much liberty do I have to give up? Should we all be ruled by everything that every possible person might be offended by? Am I a captive of everybody else's conscience and all things? No, I really don't think so. There wouldn't be any liberty at all if we were ruled by everybody's weaker brother thing all the time, constantly. But, we're really talking about perspective here, aren't we? Attitudes, perspectives. The strong desiring to minister to the weak rather than flaunt their freedom. There may be times when you have to give up a liberty altogether. Altogether. Especially when you cross cultures, like Kelsey was talking about today. There may be certain ways to dress that won't give offense. You might have to spend five minutes greeting somebody because it, it's a violation of, of love to not do that. And their culture, even though you have the liberty in Christ to say, hi, how you doing? You might have the liberty to do that, but it's a violation of love to them. See? In Russia, Christians don't smoke. Period. If you're a Christian, you don't smoke. It's a big issue over there. If you went there and tried to minister and somebody saw you with a stogie, your ministry would be over. John MacArthur got in trouble over there during a question and answer session. Somebody had the courage to step up and say, is it a sin to smoke, Dr. MacArthur? And being a jokester as he is sometimes, MacArthur, saying what he would have said in America, made a joke out of him. He says, well, smoking won't send you to hell, but you'll smell like you've been there. Well, they didn't laugh. <gasps> what do you mean it won't send you to hell? <laughs> of course it will. It's a sin! A whole nation of weaker brothers. And he offended all of them. <laughs> it's a classic example. Try telling people smoking is a sin in a tobacco country. If you go to South Carolina and you, you, you say that it's a, it's a sin to smoke, they'll throw you out from the other side. So, I mean... That's a gray area. The Bible doesn't talk about smoking. And I know that somebody's going to come up to me after church. I know what you're going to do. Say, body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you smoke your body, that's a biblical principle. Well, yeah, but then we can talk calories and cholesterol and all that other stuff, too. That's just not it. <laughs> that's a gray area. It's even a smoky area. <laughs> and I don't smoke, so I'm not justifying anything. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, was a cigar man. <laughs> So I'm sure I just pricked a healthy conscience person right now, right? Generally, our liberty should be curtailed in reasonable ways. When we know that we're causing a problem, uh, if we know that's an issue maybe in public, we shouldn't be doing something. You know, you know, smoking in church, that's a different thing than in your own home or whatever like that kind of a thing. Um, certain groups, cultures, obviously, it's a primarily an attitude toward the weaker brother, a concern for his good, 
that is genuine and sincere. I would not let everybody's opinion govern my life. That's, that's not the point. But I would, first of all, realize that to hurt a brother is to violate love. Secondly, that the kingdom matters a lot more than my desires and my liberties. Third, that I would rather build people up than tear them down. And four, I will live and want my brother to live by faith, always, always. Those four things I know for sure. When these are my concerns, then the Lord's going to help me know when it's the appropriate time to let something go or to be more careful or whatever, because I'll have the right attitude. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great power of your word, the truth of it, our liberty. What a wonderful thing we've been given, and yet what a great obligation of love we have to those who might differ from us. We thank you for being such a gracious and merciful Father. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's table together now, we just ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.